Hello and welcome to the Tally Ho, a podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And this is a special episode uh, that we're putting out featuring an interview we did recently with the writer, artist and actor Brian Gorman. Brian is a huge fan of The Prisoner and of Patrick McGowan himself, and he's most well known in prisoner-related circles for being the creator behind Everyman, which is a one-man stage play which chronicles the early life of Patrick McGowan and leads into his time working on The Prisoner. And Brian spoke to us about not only his interest in The Prisoner and his work on Everyman, but also his other projects, such as New Dawn Fades, which is his uh, play and suitably graphic novel about the Manchester music scene and Joy Division, and also One Man Bond, which is his new one-man play, which covers all of the Bond movies in just one hour. So here's our interview with Brian. Hope you enjoy. Information. Information. So we're delighted to be joined this time by writer, artist and actor Brian Gorman. Hi, Brian. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. So uh, you're a huge fan of The Prisoner. What's your earliest memory of watching the show? Um, Right. Well, I am 54 now, so I'm just too young to have seen it when it first um, appeared on television. However, in the, I would say, very early 70s, I remember being a child um, on a bus. I'm pretty certain it was, I was only about six, seven, eight years old. And I just have some vague memory of uh, a man running along a beach with a big white ball after him. And I also remember getting on a bus when I was about six or seven and seeing a a, a sign that said in big letters information and that that word just struck me so I must have been in the room at the age of about three or four when it was first on television but obviously not taking much notice of it uh, the first time I saw it properly um, I'd heard about it and um, seen the odd clip on television and thought oh blimey this looks really good and um I first saw it properly around about 1980 when the video shops first opened. And all of a sudden, I saw this uh, VHS cassette double bill of The Prisoner. Basically, they had uh, they basically edited uh, Arrival and I think it was um, Checkmate or something like that, just edited two together to try and make it look like a film. That's what they used to do in those days, just to trick you. And I remember as soon as I got that and watched it, it was immediately my favourite TV show of all time. I just loved the music. I loved the whole um, scenario. I loved the look of it. And uh, and McGowan is just incredible. I don't think there's anybody else like him, you know. How did he get away with it? He's the world's most miserable leading man. (laughs) What were your favourite... Favorite episodes or 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 aspects of the show that that really um, got you hooked on it? Um, I always like stuff that um, questions the human condition, you know. And if you can do a show like The Prisoner, where um, they mix it with action adventure, James Bond stuff, and all the esoteric philosophical stuff, to me that is ideal. Yes, I'm a massive uh, James Bond fan. Um, in fact, the show that I'm doing at the moment is One Man Bond, every Bond film in 60 minutes. Um, but the Bond films are not known for the philosophical, esoteric content. Uh, they are, I mean, the books are a little bit, you know, Ian Fleming 
did allude to you know bonds in her life and the fact that he's he's a pretty depressed um character with a lot of problems and he's always questioning life and whether he should actually be killing people but they don't really put that in the films they've done it a little bit with daniel craig but not too much um but with the prisoner you get all that action adventure and you know the music and the glamorous uh, location um the the photography the, the stunts the fights and all that but you also get that questioning of reality and that's what i think is the best thing about the prisoner that you can enjoy it on the one level um but also there's a lot of stuff underneath that uh, is going straight into your subconscious that you might you know a lot of people might not even notice gotta do sound a bit patronizing there don't i yeah. Um, but I didn't notice for years, you know, as a kid, I'd be watching it and um, thinking, oh, this is great. You know, I love the way it's made. Um, but also there's something else about it that I can't put my finger on. But as I've got older, I have put my finger on it, you know, because I've investigated it and um, done the research and done the stage play. So, yes, now I can see that, oh, blimey, they were talking about a lot more than just how, how are we uh, going to escape from these bad guys? Um, but. Uh, you were asking about which episodes. Um, I don't think there's any bad episodes. Um, there's obviously the odd one where you can tell they were stuck for time or it was a little bit rushed, you know, like um, uh, it's your funeral, perhaps, you know. Uh, but the ones I love, I mean, I really, really love Many Happy Returns. I mean, because it's so odd. I first saw it, uh, Channel 4 repeated the whole series, 1982, um, and they set it up with Arrival, obviously. Uh, but the next one they put on was um, uh, Many Happy Returns, which, you know, people said since that that was very silly of them to do because, you know, he escapes from the village in only the second episode. But in a way, when I was watching it, because I didn't realize that wasn't supposed to be the second episode, I thought it was really clever because you see him get all the way home and you think, oh, right, okay, so the next episode is not going to be in this village. Uh, when, of course, he's brought right back at the end. So I thought that was a great one because it, it just shows you that he's so determined that he goes through all this uh, effort to make it home. And yet when he gets home, he's completely betrayed by everybody. I mean, that's what's shocking about that episode, because when he gets home, uh, he recognizes everybody. These are people that he's, he's obviously worked with for a long time. And yet every single one of them have betrayed him. So it's, it's a very curious episode. And also you get, which is extremely unusual, over half the episode without any dialogue of any kind. And I think it works. It's, it's brilliant. Um, I think my other one would be um, A, B, and C. Again, you've got that weird way of the way they're trying to get into his head. And, um, yeah, it's a little bit far-fetched how he manages to then turn it around. But that final um, um, excursion into his head where he's in control and just all of a sudden, it's got a bit more poppy and a bit more psychedelic. And, and you can see the look on his face that he's in control. I just absolutely love that one as well. So you really loved The Prisoner. What was it that actually segued into your development of uh, Everyman, which is about not just The Prisoner, but Patrick McGowan himself? Basically, I have all my life, I've toyed with uh, acting, writing, uh, artwork, uh, but when I was a kid, I was put off it when I left school. Um, I tell everybody this anecdote, so I'll, t I'll t tell it to you now. It's only 30 seconds. Age 16, 
I'm about to leave school. Several of my friends are going on to college. I didn't know what a college was. Nobody told me. My parents, very simple folks, so they didn't, they didn't know anything. And I left uh, school, went into a careers office in Wigan, and I remember very distinctly, 1980, June 1980, Wigan careers office, lady behind the desk saying to me, so, Brian, what do you want to do? And I remember equally clearly saying to her, I want to draw. I want to be a cartoonist. And she looked at me and she shook her head and she said, oh, there's no cartoonists in Wigan, you know. <laughs> and I was a very shy kid. And I sat there and I probably just nodded and uh, got a job in a greengrocers and fishmongers. For six years, I hated it. I was on no money. In summer, dealing with fish and wasps, it was, oh, it was lovely. It made me a bitter and twisted individual <laughs> until uh, after six years, I finally got the courage to say, I resign. I am out of here. And I marched out of the place. It was around the time, actually, that I'd just watched The Prisoner. So I think McGowan had an effect on me. You know, don't put up with stuff. And um, so I left there. And again, for the next 10 or 20 years, I just toyed with maybe I could do some acting or writing or artwork. But I, I never really had the nerve to go for it. And then only about five or six years ago, sorry, um, sorry, about nine years ago, 2010, um, I thought, right, um, I've dabbled enough. Um, I'm going to really go for it. And I've done about 20 odd years of uh, amateur acting and little bits of videos and indie short films with mates. And I thought, I'm really going to go for it. Otherwise, I'm just going to regret it. At the age of 46, I think I was, I thought, I'm just going to regret it for the rest of my life. And so I thought, right. Rather than go for auditions and uh, queue up and do your audition with somebody who's not really bothered about you, you know, two minutes having to travel down to London from Manchester, I thought, forget it, I'm going to write myself a one-man show uh, and I'm going to produce it and direct it. And I thought, right, what am I going to write it about? I thought, okay. I'd seen a guy called Chris, Christian Mackay, I think his name is, who had done a one-man show about Orson Welles. And I'd seen it in a studio theatre in Chester, and it was absolutely brilliant. And there were only about five of us in the audience, and I remember feeling so sorry for him. But do you know what? He's played Orson Welles on the big screen now in the film. Was it uh, Orson Welles and me? Uh, was it with uh, some famous young actor? And he's doing very well. And um, But at the time, the film hadn't been made. But I'd seen this guy, and I thought, right, I'm going to do a one-man show about somebody famous, somebody recognisable and somebody that I like. And I just thought, McGowan. And then I thought, okay, well, I'm kind of, I'm fourth generation Irish. <laughs> I've got a kind of Irish sounding name, Brian Gorman, you know. And when I was a kid, my dad used to play all the Irish records. He loved McGowan. My dad hated everybody, especially Bruce Forsyth and Jimmy Tab. <laughs> he hated anybody who looked like they were enjoying themselves. McGowan, <laughs> who looked like he had a problem with the world, he loved, you know. And uh, so I thought, right, I'm going to do Patrick McGowan. So, of course, I had to, you know, look through all the prisoner stuff again. I'd never, I'd been to Port Merion as a kid once, you know. Uh, I didn't know anything about Six of One, so I had to do a lot of research. And I came upon the idea of making it like an episode of The Prisoner because, you know, he's always being questioned, who are you, why did you resign? So I thought, oh, that, well, that's a good format for the show um, because you have to have a, a structure. If you're doing a one-man show, there's got to be, it's not, it shouldn't just be you talking at the audience. There's got to be some kind of um, 
well, structure. So I thought, well, he's being questioned, so let's make it he's half number six and half McGowan. And then the more research I did, I discovered incredible stuff about McGowan's real life that fed into the prisoner. So my um, my way in was um, metaphorically lifting the top of McGowan's head off um, in 1967 and tracing back how how he came to develop the prisoner and finishing the show as the prisoner goes into production. And to my utter amazement, I found out that even before he was born, there were events in his life that all led up to the prisoner. One of the incredible things I discovered was that his his mum, when she was pregnant with him, uh, sorry, before she was pregnant with him, she was praying for a boy. Um, I I think he's I think he is the eldest. So I think he's got three younger sisters, but she was praying for a boy, and uh, she was very Catholic, very religious, and she swore to God that if the boy, if the baby was a boy, that he would go into the priesthood. So I just put two and two together, and I thought, imagine being a kid and your mum, very religious, telling you that she'd sworn to God that you were going to be a priest. And so I imagine he tried very hard, but because he's a questioning type of person, I could imagine him being like how I was. I went to a Catholic school, and I used to question especially religious lessons where you were told this is um, how you should be, this is what God said. If you say to your religious teacher, um, well, who who did God say it to and when and how come it clashes with this other version, they always used to say, oh, don't ask questions. That's what I was told as a kid. It was written in red in a school book of mine, do not ask questions. So I'm thinking... You know, I'm not saying I'm like McGowan, but I had very similar experiences. Um, I forgot what the question was. Now. How did how, that's it? How did the prisoner come into everyone? So yes, yeah, so uh, about uh, nine years ago, I thought right, I'm going to do one man show. It's going to be about Patrick McGowan. I'm going to mix it with the prisoner. I'm going to see how it goes. And the first time I did it, I was absolutely terrified. It's an hour monologue, and uh, apart from remembering all the lines, it's doing McGowan's voice. And McGowan's voice, as you know, is quite deep, and he speaks very, very like that. And you don't get any oxygen in your lungs as you're doing it. And I was absolutely exhausted, and the first time I did it, I did go blank a few times. But because McGowan has those long pauses, and he takes his time, that gave me just a few seconds for my brain to fire in and go, that's the line. So uh, I think, does that answer your question? How do you develop a one-man show um, when you're you're writing it and performing it yourself? Is is there a point where you start workshopping it in front of other people? Or how, how does the process work if you haven't got other people around you to feed into what you're doing as it goes? That's an excellent question. <laughs> it's it's funny. I mean, I've, I've been uh, doing... Well, I've stopped doing amateur shows now. Um, but... Um, also, sorry, this thing, uh, amateur professional. All professional means is that you're doing it for some kind of money. So I've seen brilliant amateurs and I've seen terrible professionals. So when I say amateur, I don't mean I did rubbish. I mean, I was doing it just for fun, you know. Um, yeah, in, in uh, all the amateur shows that I did, I, I was I was usually in shows that had at least two, three, four, five people in. I've been in shows with 20, 40 people in. And yeah, what happens then, you have to go to uh, rehearsals at a particular time because you've got to be there when other people are there. Um, 
and obviously the director tells you which scenes you're going going to rehearse on that day, uh, when your dress rehearsals are, what research you need to do. If you're doing it on your own, there is a massive, massive danger that you can be really lazy, which I often um, lapse into. Uh, now, when I say lazy, it means, for instance, I've got one-man bond. I'm doing the show again in two weeks. Um, I haven't done it for three months now. I could probably go through it now if I really had to. But I know I'm going to have to rehearse it at some point. And I know, because there's only me, uh, that, that it's entirely up to me to actually physically do it. Nobody's making me do it. And um, I think the thing is you have to be very self-disciplined. You have to know yourself. I'm I'm quite good at learning lines, and I'm quite good with the nerves on the night. So after all these years of doing acting, I know I'm going to be okay. But I, I also know what I absolutely need to do um, for the show, and I need to have gone through it, usually standing literally in this room where I am now, standing on my own when nobody else is around, and just going through it. Now, the thing is here, I'm on a ground, I'm on a ground floor flat, <laughs> and... Um, I uh, show you. You can you can see. <laughs> I was I was rehearsing the other week, and uh, I'm in the middle of a crazy scene, shouting or something, and of course a neighbour comes walking past. You know, <laughs> out, out, of, out of the corner of my eye, I, I go. Sorry, I'm miming that. I just say to them, I'm just rehearsing. Um, and it is difficult because you you're not getting any feedback. Now what I've been. I've tried getting one or two friends to to watch me kind of rehearse it, but it, it never feels right. I, I think I've got the confidence now that I'm happy to just do it myself, know that I can project, know that um, I've done it before, so it's probably likely to go okay again. But the first time I, I did the uh, Everyman, um, that was the first time I'd ever done a one-man show, and you have no safety net, you know. Uh, if something goes wrong, you've only got yourself uh, to help yourself. And if you go blank, you've got to get out of it somehow. Um, and after the first few times I did it, I just made sure that I knew my lines before the show came up. You know, I knew that I couldn't rely on somebody else whispering them to me. or And I, I will never have a prompt. I know some people do. Um, I've seen prompts, you know, when somebody's at the side of the stage and they'll give a, an actor a line if they forget it. I've seen people do that in professional theatre and amateur theatre, and I always think that's a bad thing because if an actor forgets something, surely the fellow actors can get them out of it. I've been in scenes 20 years ago where I'm in the middle of a scene and I'm thinking, my line's coming up, I've no idea what it is. And then the, the other actors will look at me and I'll look at them. And the thing is, there's a phrase I love that um, Q says in The World Is Not Enough to Bond. He says, never let them see you bleed. So the worst thing you can do on stage is if you forget something, is to suddenly drop character. You know, for instance, you're standing there in character. It's like, blah, blah, blah. You forget something. And you go, oh, you know, your shoulders drop. Your body language changes. The audience can see something's gone wrong. But if you maintain the body posture and you, you look confident, one of your other actors will give you the line somehow. You know, if they're competent, they will they will find a way of getting the line to you. Say my line is, um, oh, the, the weather's turned um, nasty, hasn't it? You know, so a character looks at me and I've forgotten the line. They should be able to say, do you know what? 
I was just thinking, and you'd probably agree with me on this, that the weather's turned nasty. Yes, it has. You know, and sometimes that can be fun. Um, so I would never have a prompt. So trying to, I've digressed again here. <laughs> I love digressing. Um, yes, doing a one-man show, you've got to be disciplined. You've got to know your stuff because nobody can get you out of it. Thankfully, there's only been one time where I've gone so blank, I just couldn't remember where I was. And that wasn't in Everyman, that was in the Bond. I'd do all the Bond films, and I was I was into Goldfinger. And each Bond film, I'm only last two minutes in the in the show, and I'd gone completely blank. But luckily, it was a little private event, and there were only four people watching me. So I did actually stop and go, do you know what? I've gone completely blank, and I'm going to start this bit again. Thank you. And they love that. <laughs> you can get away with that in One Man Bond because there's a lot of comedy in it. Doing Every Man with McGowan, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, but I think if I was really um, struggling with a with a with a play, if I if I thought there's going to be a point where I'll go blank, I will have some kind of backup. I've come up with ingenious things in the past. You know, you have a book on stage with all your lines in. And you use it literally as a prop so that if there is a moment when you need to, you need a, a safety net, you can get it. Um, but I've been lucky. When I have gone blank, I've managed to recover it. Um, so your portrayal of, of Magoo, and that, I mean, in addition to uh, the intensity and, and possibly actually the, you know, the stress that comes with being the only person in the play, you know, how do you how do you cope with with doing Magoo himself for for an hour because that's you know to channel that kind of intensity must be uh, must be pretty tough uh it is and uh, you've just used the word that a word there that i use quite a lot channel because it's very it's very peculiar um i've written another show called new dawn fades which is about joy division the band whose lead singer ian curtis committed suicide now Doing a show like that, you've got to be careful because you're dealing with real people and real emotions. And Ian Curtis's family may well see the show, so you've got to be very careful. And again, with Patrick McGowan, you know, this is a real person. His, you know, his his wife and children are alive and are around and may at some point see it or read it. Um, so I've got to be careful. And also, uh, I'm not into going into extremist theories. Um, if there's not real evidence and it's a stage show, you know, I'm not doing a thesis, you know, there's a lot that can be said about Patrick McGowan. Some people have said, I mean, Darren Nesbitt, for instance, with whom I have, I'll use the word clashed. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um, he has, um, some pretty blunt, um, theories about Patrick McGowan. Um, other people, uh, I won't name names, but um, you know people who have acted with him, major names who I've, I've seen them in interviews, so I know that's what they do think. Have said that he suffered a mental breakdown during the prisoner. I don't know if that's true. I mean, things were treated differently back then. Um, he may have had some kind of breakdown. He may have had problems with alcohol. I don't know. Um, so you have to be careful when you're dealing with a real person. So all the stuff that was in his life, I made sure that it was stuff that had actually happened. And any theorizing that I did had to be kind of done with respect. And any dialogue that I put into his mouth that isn't from a transcript or a, 
uh, you know, video or whatever, um, it would have to be very, very um, believable. Um, so, yes, and also the fact that McGowan is quite an intense performer. Um, and the way he speaks, as I was saying, that very, very clipped, um, what's the word, uh, staccato delivery. To do that for an hour, um, well, it's not your, not my natural speaking voice, um, is difficult. And the first few times I did it, I was absolutely exhausted. I was completely dehydrated. But, you know, the more times you do it, the more times you, you use little bits of stage business to give yourself a rest. So now I will have a, a jug of water on stage and a glass, and I'll use that as part of the, um, part of the show. You know, it's not just me going to the side and just taking a, a glass of water. It is part of the character. Um, but, yeah, also getting into somebody's head. I don't want to go too much into the kind of the supernatural side of this or the psychoanalytical side. But when you're playing a real person and you're speaking in the way of speaking and you're using the body language, it is channeling it's it becomes very very peculiar i found that um when i'm going to do uh every man um the about, about a week beforehand i've found myself um you know standing on a train or walking down the street and all of a sudden thinking oh my god i'm walking like mcgoon or i'm moving like mcgoon and i'm speaking and i'm thinking i'm possessed <laughs> and it is very very peculiar and when you come off stage um it, it's always funny meeting people who don't know you. Say, when I first time I did Every Man at um, Port Marion, um, lots of people that don't know me. So when I walk on stage, they may have spotted my face around during the day, but they don't know me. And then I do McGowan for an hour, and I behave in a certain way, and I speak in a certain way, and then I go off stage. First time I did it at Port Marion, three or four people came into the green room. You know, I was just taking my shirt off, and they just came and said, you know, oh my God, that was great, Patrick McGowan. There was an American lady said, oh my God, and I was just speaking as myself, and they were kind of kind of astonished that I wasn't speaking like Patrick McGowan, and that I looked like an ordinary person, and I was, body language was back to normal. And I think, you know, unless you you act yourself, it can seem like a kind of magic. I mean, I've, I used to work at the Chester Gateway Theatre in the box office for ten years, and I was constantly amazed that you'd get. Um, production start and we used to rehearse for four or five weeks and then the show would go on for three weeks and you'd see actors coming in for the read-through and they'd just be normal everyday people and you'd like some you wouldn't like others some would seem very confident and egotistical others would seem very shy and very nice and you'd see them around for weeks on end and get to know them and then you'd sit in and watch the show and it was like you were watching totally different people you'd sit there thinking how do they do this it's called acting, you know, it's pretty. And there was a great thing that Gareth Thomas said to me once. And if you know Blake Seven, yeah, I absolutely love Blake Seven. See, a neighbor's just walked past now and they think I'm talking to myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's that madman. Um, yeah, Gareth Thomas, Blake Seven, absolutely love Blake Seven. I was interviewing him once uh, over several pints of Stella before he went on stage. <laughs> He actually said to me, he said, oh, the day I can't go on stage after having five pints of Stella is the day I give up. <laughs> Rather you than me, Gareth. <laughs> and he said to me that he was in a show once and afterwards uh, a mother and a little kid came up to him and um, 
and said, oh, that was wonderful, that was wonderful, that, that was really scary. And the mother said to the child, oh, it's okay, you know, it's not real. And the little kid turned to her mum and said, but it's real for now. So when you're in the character role, it is real. And I think that's the secret of acting. You, It's like you, you trick your subconscious into believing what you're saying is real. But to be on stage for an hour is Patrick McGowan. <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine a more difficult part to do. I think I've done this thing the right way around. Do the really difficult one first. Everything else will seem easy. When I'm in a play now and there's more than one person in it, you know, i.e. me and other people, it seems like this is really easy. <laughs> so the pressure's off me. You know, as one man on stage, everybody's looking at you 100% of the time. So, um, yeah, it's tough. And you have to be a little bit crazy to do it. <laughs> So um, every man has taken on an extended life almost uh, in the form of a wonderful uh, graphic novel, uh, which you drew as well, and also um, an audio drama as well. Um, so how did they come about? I mean, was it always your plan to uh, to move every man into into different media? I mean, I know you'd done um, another graphic novel before called Borderliners. I mean, was that always something that was bubbling away that you wanted to do? Uh, well, graphic novels and comics is the first thing that I've always, always wanted to do. Um but I've discovered over the years that unless you get in with Marvel or DC or whatever, um, it, it's difficult because you've got to spend the time writing and, and drawing the thing and then get it printed and published and, and sold. If you're doing a stage show, you can you can rehearse it within a few weeks and go on, you know, and it's living and alive and whatever. Um, with Everyman, what happened was that um, as soon as I'd done the stage show, I thought I'm, I'd really, I really want to turn it into a graphic novel just to get it further out there because I can't put the stage show in an envelope and post it to where you are or to the USA or wherever, you know. Um, yeah, if I did a tour of the show, maybe. But a graphic novel is something solid that somebody, somebody can get hold of who probably can't get to see the show. Also, it's a great bit of merchandise for when you're doing the stage show, you know, because that's what I love. When I go to the theatre... Um, you know, you see a show, you really enjoy it, but you know, because it's live, it's going to completely disappear in a few weeks. And if you can take something away with you, usually it's a program, but most programs, unfortunately, half of it are, are adverts and they're not that wonderful. But imagine if you can take a graphic novel of the show that you've just seen and with some of the imagery being what you've just seen. So it just seemed, uh, as our American cousins call it, a no brainer. Um and I enjoyed doing it. And then uh, I was asked uh, by Coit Media, the company, was I interested in doing an audio version? And I've never, I've done, you know, I've done short films and stuff, and I've um, I've done the odd voiceover for adverts, you know, only local adverts, you know, local shop, you know. Um, but I've never done an audio drama, and that was peculiar, sitting in a little booth just leaning into a microphone. I mean, it was great for the intense moments because I could speak very quietly. I didn't have to project. But for the moments where I'm marching around the stage and I'm you know, doing all the kind of uh, energetic stuff, obviously I can't really do that in, in a tiny space. So I had to adjust the performance a little and make it more introspective. So how I imagined it, when I did it on stage, I imagined that he was in like, um, you know, like number two's dome, the big space um that's how i imagined it for my um internal purposes 
but when I did the audio, I imagined that he was in a small cell and that he was kind of talking to himself and sometimes he'd talk at the wall knowing that he was being watched and listened to. So um, if you listen to the the audio CD, you can hear at the beginning the echoing footsteps, which is supposed to be him going into a cell. And then you can hear little bits of whirring and electronic buzzing sounds. That is supposed to uh, emulate, you know, little cameras in the ceiling and stuff like that. So we wanted to give it that claustrophobic feel. So you have to adjust it for each medium. And doing the graphic novel, that's the most freedom I'll ever get unless somebody gives me 200 million for a huge film. Because in the graphic novel, I can depict all those people on the, sta- on the stage, um, say scenes between McGowan and Orson Welles, when Orson Welles was auditioning him for Moby Dick. In the graphic novel, of course, I can draw Orson Welles, you know. So you have different freedoms and different restrictions in each media. And of course, the more different versions you do, you reach a wider audience because there are some people who don't like the theatre but will listen to an audio and some people who hate audios but will love the graphic novel. And hopefully, um, if enough people see it, I'm giving a potential future filmmaker or program maker everything they need to make a film of my show. So if Channel 4 come calling or BBC, what I'd love is BBC 4 to do one of those, um, you know, there's kind of um, drama documentaries. They've done one on uh, Ari H. Corbett and uh, Frankie Howard. Um I would love it if they did one about McGowan and how he created The Prisoner. And all they have to do is come to me. There's all your storyboards in the graphic novel. There's all your sound effects, you know. And um, there's even a stage show. And I'm available. But I can't play McGowan. See, again, for the for the Everyman show now, yes, I can, I can do... Um, well, I won't do more audios or more graphic novels. They're one-offs. But the stage show, to do the stage show again, I know I'm getting a bit old for it now because... One, it's hard work. Two, um, McGowan in the stage show is only supposed to be maximum um, 38, you know, when he made The Prisoner. So if I did the stage show again, I might rewrite a little bit of it as the older McGowan looking back. So, um, you know, I'm literally just thinking about this as we're speaking. So thank you for this. <laughs> You're not getting a cold credit. But <laughs> with this. Right. Well, what you were just saying was actually really interesting because... Although, um, you know, McGowan is and will always be associated with The Prisoner, there is a lot that I think would be very interesting to dramatise that took place, uh, both prisoner-related and unrelated, in in his very long career that took place afterwards. Because obviously he had a um, he had an interesting relationship with with the show and how fans of the show interacted with it as well. And those are all things that I think would be quite interesting to to reflect on. Um, you know, almost not even as a revision to Everyman, but actually as a as a complete follow-up to it, you know, which is, you know, looking back, like you say, but not covering what you do in Everyman, but taking the uh, the viewpoints that he had maybe uh, later on. And also that was that was pretty well documented as well. I mean, there were lots of interesting interviews where he was, although he never spoke about the prisoner itself and what it meant, there's a lot that was known about, you know, his views about, you know, about how it was received, etc. So uh, that'd be really interesting to see. And you should do it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yeah, you've given me ideas now. This is great. Um, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of people who've seen the stage show and, and read the graphic novel who have been saying, um, I would have really liked to have seen more 
of when he did Columbo and after The Prisoner. And my answer to that has been, well, the thing is about every man, the, the whole point of it was to explore how he got to The Prisoner. So that's why it stops at The Prisoner. Uh, but of course, there's lots of stuff, you know, what happened during The Prisoner. Why did it kind of begin to fall apart? Why did it end in such a surreal way? Um, did Lou Grade get fed up and pull the money? Why did George Markstein walk away? Um, and also, you've, we've got, you know, actors who are still alive and people from behind the scenes who have got their take on it, which is fascinating. You know, you'll have people who say that he was an absolute tyrant and a horrible man on set, and others who will say, no, he was absolutely brilliant. I, I would um, guess that he was particularly on The Prisoner, because it, was, it wasn't all his responsibility, but on The Prisoner, that was his idea. Now, imagine being McGowan, being in Danger Man for all those years, being seen as this straightforward leading man in pretty, you know, simplistic television, you know, very well made, but still guy on a mission, this happens, that happens, ending, he wins. Then all of a sudden, this guy persuades Lou Grade to take a huge chance on this absolutely crazy show. Can you imagine the pressure that McGowan must have been under making it? I mean, sometimes when I've been um, doing shows, you know, like New Dawn Fades about Joy Division, when I've been trying to explain to the director why I have put Dr. John D. Elizabeth I's astrologer and occultist from 1596 in a scene meeting Ian Curtis on a medieval bridge in Manchester. I, because nobody else has done that, nobody else knows why it's happening, I then have to explain to the director and the actors, and some of them just couldn't get it, said, well, why does John Dee have to be in it? And I'm saying, because, but, ah, because at one point he was crossing that same medieval bridge that Ian Curtis was crossing, and a lot of Curtis's lyrics are about things overlapping and bridges and, you know, so as I'm having to explain that. Now, imagine being McGowan. Imagine being McGowan and trying to explain Rover and saying it's going to be like this and build it. You know, can you imagine the guys in the carpentry shop thinking, what? You know, you know, they do their best to do it, but they must be thinking this guy's crazy or what the hell is this? Why are we here? And he's the guy who has to kind of uh, keep it all together as well as playing the leading role. And from some of the background uh, behind the scenes shots that I've seen recently uh, from the filming at Port Merion, it was open and the visitors were there. You can see McGowan doing his kind of walking around at the start of arrival, you know, frowning and, you know, where am I? And when you see a behind the scenes shot, there's about a hundred people all there with ice screams and going, oh, it's danger, man, isn't it? Oh, look, you know, you think, oh, yeah. I mean, there's a whole other play there. You know, my, I'm going to come up with titles now, but, you know, like um, starting it off, um, you know, you could open the play with him filming the first episode. As, as every man starts, you know, I walk on stage and I say, where am I? Oh, very good. You know, as if like, oh, you put me in a stage area. And I, I could do the same for a sequel, walk on and say, where am I? And do the first few bits of dialogue from Arrival. And um, and then you hear somebody shout, cut. And then the McGowan's there with the fags, you know, and um, talking to the script writer and then fans coming up to him. that. Right, I'm getting a pen, right? <laughs> I'm writing it down. This is my idea. Every man to back in action. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> 
forgotten the question again. But, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, there's lots and lots. I mean, McGowan is one of those people that there's so much to explore because he had that mask, didn't he? Um, I mean, when you read about his life, this is another thing that absolutely fascinated me. There were parallels between me and him because when I was a kid, yes, I was brought up in a Catholic school. We were told you had to do this, you had to do that, you know, um, you had to get a normal job. Um, I was intensely shy. Um, I got married about the same age as McGowan, uh, had a child a year later, um, just as I discovered drama and the drama brought me out of my shell. And um, I'm always cast, I'm always typecast these days as policemen or psychopaths. <laughs> you know, and what did McGowan play? <laughs> similar, similar roles, you know, and you think, why? You know, and it's probably because, um, you know, if you if you used to be very, very shy, you're used to hiding all your emotions so that when it comes to acting, you can bring the emotions out. But it's like the coming out through the top of a, a pressure cooker. And I think that's that's the most exciting kind of acting. Gene Hackman's great at that. You know, he's very still, but you can see little moments, you know, and Gary Oldman's good at that when he played George Smiley in um, Tinker, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. There's only one moment in the whole film where his voice raises a tiny bit, but when it does, it's incredible. And McGowan's like that. He's very good at just keeping it all in. You can see that it's about to burst out, and he must have been incredible on stage. Do you have a preference for being on stage or, or working on the graphic novels or the audio, or is it too difficult to pick between them? Well, see, I enjoy all of them. They're all very different, but the thing is you, you do one – and it's so tight. Say you do a stage show, you do an acting job. You enjoy the lead up to it. You enjoy the rehearsals and doing all the all the press and all the uh, publicity. And of course, on the night, you if it goes well, you enjoy afterwards. You know the applause and whatever. You enjoy that. But you also realise that it's really hard work. And if you were doing a live show, like at the moment, I'm putting these dates together for touring One Man Bond. Now, this means that I am nailed down to those dates. So even if I'm full of flu, even if I really don't feel like traveling 50 miles, I've got to go. Otherwise, your reputation precedes you. Then, you know, oh, this guy doesn't turn up, so you've got to do it. So when I'm doing the acting, yeah, at the moment, it's exciting now because I'm building up to doing the touring of One Man Bond. It's exciting, but I know damn well that after about two, two or three performances, I'll be thinking, why am I doing this? This is hard work. I'd rather be doing the graphic novel. And then when I'm doing the graphic novel, like at the moment, I've just finished the new Don Fade's graphic novel, and uh, we've just got to literally put the pages into a file to get to the printer, um, to the publisher. I'm finding that too much like hard work, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm not going to do another graphic novel for ages. So whichever one you do, you enjoy the enjoyable bits, and the non-enjoyable bits make you want to do the other things instead. But I enjoy all of them equally. I think the easiest, obviously I think the easiest thing to do physically is the writing um, because it's just you. You can write on a train, you can write anywhere. Um, if it's the acting, you've got to be somewhere. You've got to speak, you've got to move, you know, you've got to have a wash, you've got to, you know, meet people. Um, so, but at the moment I'm enjoying it, you know, um, so yeah, I enjoy all of them really. So you've uh, mentioned your one man Bond show. So so how did that come about? What's its format? And and I believe also you've taken it to a 
to Pinewood as well. That must have been that must have been quite exciting. It was exciting, but it was terrifying, and I think it was the worst performance I've done, to be honest. But I'll I'll tell you why in a minute. It was circumstances beyond my control. Um, yeah, one man bond. Um, basically. Uh, we've been doing New Dawn Fades now for five years, and uh, it's getting bigger and bigger. And every time we've done it, that's a show with nine actors, a lot of equipment, and it's really expensive to put on. And me and my co-producer, we have to sign the contracts for the venues. So it's us that are sweating for months on end, <laughs> thinking we've got to sell this amount of tickets, otherwise we're liable. So it's a lot of pressure. And I always think that we're never going to do it. You know, you've got all those people and you've got all the audio-visual effects and everything. And we've always managed to pull it off. But when we did it uh, a year ago, uh, we toured it for the first time. We went down to London for the first time. And it was just all the practicalities of getting all those actors transported down into their accommodation, hoping that none of them twisted an ankle or whatever, and, um, and that we got through it. And there's so much pressure. And after that, I thought, right, I want to do another show, but I'm going to do the complete opposite. You know, it's going to be one person, me, no props, no costumes, no effects, nothing. It's this is I wanted to do something a bit like every man that I could do. I could do it right now. I could stand in the garden and do it. Um, so I wanted to do something incredibly simple. And um, I'd seen the reduced Shakespeare company do every Shakespeare play in 90 minutes. I saw them do that years ago, and it must have stuck in the back of my head. And um, about over a year ago, I uh, I heard of a guy who did the uh, one-man Star Wars. He did the first, the well, the proper three, you know, <laughs> 1977 to 1983, um, in 45 minutes. And I thought, that's interesting. And then I found that they'd uploaded, somebody had uploaded, I don't know if it was official, his whole show on YouTube from a Star Wars convention. And so I watched it and I thought, right, this is fascinating. I was, it was just one guy on stage in a boiler suit. He was only in his 30s, so he could throw himself around in the action scenes. I, I can't really do that now and I don't want to. And he was even doing the music himself and uh, absolutely everything. And I thought, wow. And I thought, I'd love to see this guy, but he was uh, from New Zealand. But then by strange coincidence, I was kind of Googling where he might be, and I and found that he was doing a tour of the UK at that very moment. This was just over a year ago. And then I noticed that there was a friend of mine in Manchester who's a comedian who was doing the warm-up for him. Oh, this is fate, isn't it? So I contacted my mate, and he got me a ticket you know, to go and see it, and it was great. And I thought, right, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to because I'm a big Bond fan, I'm going, going to do every Bond film in an hour. Now, the good thing about the Bond films is there's lots of one-liners. So basically, it's just every one-liner from the Bond films. And you get to do the over-the-top stuff, you know. And I, I knew I could do I knew I knew could do Sean Connery. And uh, I knew I could do Roger Moore. And then I had to learn how to do Timothy Dalton. He's very, very precise, very British, you know. And then Pierce Brosnan. He's hmm. <laughs> very, uh, yes, I love myself. Hmm. You know, so I thought, right, I can, I can do this. And I started writing it. It took me forever to write it because I didn't just want to go off um, scripts online because quite often they don't, they're not exactly how they were done in the film. So I had to watch all the films again. I've seen all the films 20-odd times each. Uh, but I had to watch them again and get the nuances and get all the different characters. And um, the first time rehearsing it, 
absolutely exhausting because I was jumping about doing explosions and this and that. And the first time I performed it in Manchester, I was absolutely exhausted. I thought, I'm going to kill myself if I keep doing this. But I've done it about 10 times now over the last few months, and uh, I've managed to pace it now so that I do a little bit of ad-libbing in between each film, and I take imaginary telephone calls from Cubby Broccoli. You know, So after, say, you only live twice, I'm on the phone. Hey, Cubby, no, Sean's not doing any more. What? No, no, he, no, he's definitely, no, we're going to scour the land. We're going to get the best actor available. It's going to be fantastic. Hello? You pick somebody. George. Uh, sorry, jo what, George Hamilton? George, what's who? Lay, lay, lays a bit. <laughs> what, the Australian? You're joking. <sighs> okay. You know, stuff like that. And sometimes I just make it up on the night. And and it's beginning to work like that now. You can't do that in the McGowan show, <laughs> you know. You have to be McGowan, and it's very serious. It's about his life. But with a Bond show, it's like 24 little bits, and um, and I can literally walk to the side of the stage after each one and do another entrance for the next one. That's what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, yeah, that's it's 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 hard doing it physically while I'm doing it, but audiences have been really really liking it people are laughing their heads off they seem to laugh at the things i i don't think they're going to laugh at i mean the torture scene in casino royale you know it's horrible they're laughing their heads off you know I'm like this is mad you know and i can't really do daniel craig yet so what i do is i just keep my teeth clenched and do him like dead pun like that i get away with it but then I jump up and down doing the fights, you see, and I pull the tie off and go a bit manic. So um, that kind of works, you know. So how did you get the invite to uh, to perform the one-man Bond show at uh, Pinewood? Again, it's a long story. I'll keep it very, 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 very short, right? 25 years ago, when I was in Chester, uh, I noticed somebody had put on You Only Live Twice at the local cinema as a 25th anniversary. And I thought, oh, I'll see it on the big screen. I went along and there was a... a a young guy in the foyer, he was only 19, I think, and he had a little table with some photocopy uh, fanzines that he did on Bond. And I said, oh, are you Gareth? Are you the guy who's organised the screening? And he was quite shy and, and, you know, very young. He said, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, great, thanks for doing that. So is this your fanzine? Um, well, I, I draw if you want any illustrations. Oh, yes, please. So what happened was over the years, I did a few little illustrations for him. And a year after he did that screening, he contacted me and said, hey, I'm going to do uh, another weekend of films at Theatre Cluid in North Wales, uh, including Thunderball, and we're going to have Desmond Flewellyn, who played Q. I said, oh, great, yeah, I'll come along. So I went along. I said, oh, great, doing well, Gareth. A <laughs> couple of years later, he phones me again and says, uh, do you fancy doing something at Pinewood Studios? I said, Pinewood? What are you doing? He said, well, I've organised this two-day event, <laughs> and if you can help me kind of show people around the studios, uh, you can have your transport and hotel and all that. I said, yeah, great. So I went down, and on the first day, I met Jack Douglas from the Carry On Films, who I didn't recognise at all, you know, very tall, very posh guy. Didn't know who he was. Desmond, I met Bert Kwok and Valerie Leon and Julian Glover. You know, just... And I, I was in a room with uh, Brian Forbes and his wife, Nanette Newman, for half an hour, just the, just the three of us in a room while um, we were waiting for something. And I was chatting away to Brian Forbes... <laughs> And it's just bizarre. And then afterwards, I said, oh, that's great, Gareth. Well done. I said, what are you thinking of doing next? He said, oh, I'm going to try and get an office here. So to cut a long story short, he got an office. He's now written about 10 books on films. 
He does radio programs and he became Roger Moore's PA about 10 years ago. And I said to him, how did you get that? He said, well, I was in the Pinewood Canteen one day and there was a notice stuck to the notice board saying PA wanted for Roger Moore. So he literally walked down the corridor, knocked on the door and uh, got the job. So um, so about six months ago, he contacted me. Um, I don't see him very often now, but I did manage to see him a few months ago when Roger did his show at Salford. And I did I did say to Gareth, I've not seen you for ages. It might be good to catch up in uh, Salford. Um, any chance I can pop backstage? Because I, I hate that. I don't do autographs and I don't go to meet celebs and all that. I thought, it's Roger Moore, you know. He's 89, I've got to see him. And so he said, yeah, come backstage. So that was amazing. I went backstage, walked into this dressing room, and this he's six foot two, so he's only two inches taller than me. But he stood up and he seemed to be 100 foot tall. It was bizarre. And he seemed to be 200 years old. You know, he just looked, you know, because when you meet someone in real life, it's very different. And I thought, oh, my God, it's Roger Moore. And I just said, welcome to Salford, you know. And I didn't ask for an autograph or a photo. But as I was leaving, I thought, oh, I wish I'd asked for a photo. But never mind. So anyway, so Gareth contacted me a few months ago and said, oh, I hear you doing this one-man show. Would you like to do it at Pinewood? We're doing an all-day Bond event. Um, there'll be lots of guests. Eunice Gason, who's just died, you know, the first Bond girl, she was there. And Shane Rimmer, Monty Norman was there. He wrote the James Bond theme with a bit of help from John Barry. And... Um, but that was difficult. I thought, wow, I'm doing it at Pinewood in the Pinewood ballroom, which is huge, in front of all these Bond people. Not just the actors, but, you know, the cinematographers and editors and all those kinds of people. And I thought, even if this goes terribly, I will always be able to say, how many people have played James Bond at Pinewood Studios? You know, <laughs> and, and, it, and it started at 10 in the morning, but it was a roasting hot day. Uh, it was really claustrophobic in the building. I had to be at the stall all day, and I was only going to be on the last per the last act. And I was going on stage at about 6 o'clock, and everybody had to be out of the building by half past 7. So I had to do it without an interval, which made it even more difficult. So I was the last one to go on, and at that point, I just had this feeling that everybody was tired. It had been a long, hot, sunny day, and the room was very, very warm. And a lot of the older actors looked as though they really wanted to go to bed, you know. And um, so I got up on the stage and there's no um, proper, it's not It's not a setup to do a stage show. It's basically just a, I don't know what they do. There's a piano on there or something. So it wasn't set up for me. And I thought, this is a huge room. So there were two tech guys who put up, put a couple of microphone stands at either side of the stage. And so I made the decision to actually go with a, a mic stand in front of me to make it easier for everybody. And it, that was a massive mistake because I, I move about so much that really, ideally, I should have a head head mic or be in a smaller space. So I went with this daft idea of doing it for the mic. And it was only 10 minutes in. I thought I've made the wrong decision here because I was like really restrained. And I just felt that everybody was just a bit tired. And I could see Eunice Gason was sat right in front of me at these cabaret tables and you could see that she was kind of nodding off really but then when it came to her line you know you know connery says i admire your courage miss trench sylvia trench i could see she just went she just looked up and stared straight at me she recognized her lines she must have thought why is this man doing my lines you know um 
so yeah, so that was really hard work. I had a, I had pints of water just off to the side of the stage, and I had to keep dashing to the side because I was just so dehydrated. And when I came off, I thought that's the worst I've ever done it. But you see, the thing is, when you when you do a show, whatever you feel, however you feel, it's gone. It doesn't matter because it's the audience that matter. I've come off some shows and thought that's the worst I've ever done. Surely they can see that's bad, and people have said that's the best one you've done. And I'm thinking, how, how does this work? And sometimes you've gone on, you come off, thought that was brilliant, and people have said it was a bit, uh, you know. So it's impossible. You can only ever go on and do your best and make them have it. And whatever happens, happens. You've got no control over how an audience is feeling, how the room is, how the acoustics are. You do it. And out of 100 shows, you know, if there's the odd one that doesn't feel it's gone well, so what? But the thing is, it, it wasn't filmed. And um, from now on, it's in the press releases, you know, by request. I can't, you know, can't lose. So what are your plans for the future of the One Man Bond show? Uh, well, my master plan <laughs> is I hope to do what the One Man Star Wars guy has done. He started off about 10 years ago in New Zealand doing it in little venues, you know, above a pub and stuff like that, which is how I've started with Bond. Then it got popular and he was doing it in bigger and bigger venues. That's kind of what's happening with One Man Bond. You know, I'm going to bigger you know, real theatres and whatever. And the one-man Star Wars guy, one day he got a letter, and it was on letter-headed paper from Lucasfilm. <laughs> and um, and they said, oh, would you like to come to Skywalker Ranch and perform your show for us? Um, George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and <laughs> whatever would like to see it. And he thought, oh, my God. When he saw Lucasfilm, he thought, they're suing me. And so he did it for them, and they loved it, and they've endorsed it now. I'm assuming they'll get they get about 25% or something, but they've endorsed it. So he's set up for life. So my master plan is that um, one day I'll get a call from Eon Productions and they'll either say, we're shutting you down, pal, or we're endorsing you, or would you like to do it at the rap party for the next Bond film? That's my dream. I will make that happen. Um so that's what I hope will happen. On, on a personal level, the one-man bond is basically my semi-regular income. I want to be performing it at least a couple of times a month, you know, kind of forever, really, um, whilst New Dawn Fades is being produced elsewhere, and um, I will do, you know, the odd graphic novel. There's also other plays that I want to do. I'd love to do a one-man play about John Thor, you know, from the Sweeney and Spectre Morse, because, you know, he, he came from Manchester, loved the Sweeney. Um, and there's, there's other shows. Um, I've often thought of a one-man show about Edward Woodward, you know, Callan, the Equaliser, basically about men who are about my age and looked a bit grey, you know. Um, but again, you have to also think business-wise, you know, like um, the Magoon show, you know, unless it did get uh, The Guardian in to review it or it was on a big stage, it is kind of a niche thing. Um, although you do see niche things traveling, but Bond, you know, everybody knows Bond, you know, but even if you hate the films, you know all about Bond. And I'm hoping that the timing is good, that for the last year, I've been doing little shows here and there and working out the best way to perform it, how to pace it right, how to advertise it. And now that I'm doing the tour later this year, it will coincide with the new film going into production which means that in the next few months we'll be hearing um, what 
you know who's in it and and uh, you know location reports so the bit so bond will be in the air from now you know danny boyle's just been announced as uh, the director he's from bury i'm from wigan so you know there's connections um so i'm hoping there'll be a buzz about the new film while i'm on stage doing it and that will link into publicity and i'm hoping to carry on doing it into the you know into next year and I, I really want Eon Productions to notice it because it is like a like a fan letter. It's not kind of taken well, it is taking the Mickey a bit, you know, but only in the later Roger Moore's, you know. I mean I do a lot of kind of like the love scenes, which is just like, you know, Roger Moore making strange noises, you know. Um and, and some of the really cheesy one liners, you know, when you get Roger Moore saying a really cheesy chat up line to like a, a young woman who's old enough to be his granddaughter. You know, it does... The comedy speaks for itself, you know. Uh, so when are you next doing One Man Bond? Well, it's funny you should ask that. I um, just um, confirmed uh, yesterday that I'm going to do a free late night, which is unusual, uh, preview. Um, basically, I'm doing the show in the Greater Manchester Fringe Festival in the middle of July, and I thought I needed to do the show a couple of times before the festival, so it's in the best possible shape. So I was in uh, Glossop, um, which is um, uh, 15 minutes on the train outside of Manchester. Very nice, picturesque little village. where It's the area where they filmed The League of Gentlemen, which I love. And it's a brilliant little village, and friends of mine live there. And I was in a, in a pub there the other night called Globe, which is quite well known for... Um, uh, been a really good music venue. They've got a big upstairs room. And they have lots of kind of quite famous folk um, musicians perform there. And um, I just happened to be chatting to the barman, and I said, uh, do you do you know, comedy or shows up there? And he said they've been thinking of maybe doing the odd thing that wasn't music. And I said, well, I've got this show. Here's a flyer I just happened to have on me. I always carry flyers. And um, he said he just happened to love James Bond. And he said uh, the the landlord loved the Alan Partridge sketch, you know, where he does the spy love me in, you know, 30 seconds um, and to contact them. So uh, we've just confirmed that for Friday, 22nd of June. Um, they've even given me a support act, <laughs> which is great. But the support act only starts at nine, which means I'm on at 1015. It's going to be the latest I've ever done it. It also means I won't be able to have a drink in a pub until I come off stage because I never drink before I go on stage. You know, because even if, not like Gareth Thomas and his five pints of Stella, um, because even if you think you're fine, if something goes wrong, all you're thinking of in your subconscious is it's that you know I had a drink, so I don't drink before I go on stage. So basically, I've uh, advertised it as a free preview, and. Um, and people can just come into the pub and go upstairs, but to you know guarantee a seat, it's on Eventbrite, um, where you can uh, book a, a free ticket, um, and I think it holds I don't know seventy or eighty people. Again, I've no idea how many people will get, but it's basically a chance for me to get back into the groove because the last time I did the show was Starburst um, Magazine Festival at Media City in Salford, but that was in March, so. Um, so yes, that's advertised. Now, if you go on my Facebook page or if you go on my website, this is another thing. I've actually finally invested in a proper website. 
I've actually paid some money for a website, um, which is BrianGorman.online. I actually paid 99p for the domain name. Thank God there's not many people called Brian Gorman, you know. The only other famous Brian Gorman is, an um, is a baseball umpire in America or something. So, and he doesn't appear to have a website. Um, so if you go to BrianGorman.online, I put up the latest information and uh, ticket uh, links. Um, so, yeah, so it's um, two weeks' time in Glossop. Uh, middle of July, Greater Manchester Fringe Festival. Um, I'm putting dates together, but in August... Um, I'm doing it near my hometown of Wigan. Then I'm doing it down in Newbury, near Oxford. Um, I'm doing it at the Lakes International Comic Festival in October and the Met in Bury and somewhere in Loughborough that's got to be confirmed. So there's it's all over the place, which is going to be strange for me because the only time I've toured with stuff is New Dawn Fades that I'm not actually in. So I could tour with the show and just relax and just be in the bar and watch the show you know, and sell some programs. But this time I'm traveling and having to do the show. So I keep thinking, please don't get a cold in the middle of September. Please don't break my ankle because it's one man, you know. And again, um, even in New Dawn Fades, if one of the actors um, were ill, I would have gone on as the writer with a script and asked the audience to bear with us. And if anybody wanted a ticket, refunding they could but that that happens in professional theater the royal exchange in manchester um they can't afford understudies so they had uh cat on hot tin roof last year and the guy playing big daddy you know the one the, possibly the main character um fell ill and so the director went on with a script and he, he's not an actor and he just read the script and apparently only two people asked for the money back because i think most people understand that it's not the fault of the actors and you know but if something goes wrong with one man bond, I'm not sure I can find somebody at the last minute who can memorize all that and do it in the same way. So, um, so it is a bit, bit of a risk, but that's, you know, that's live theater. If something did happen, you know, you just have to, uh, accept it. Although I should actually record it, shouldn't I? And then send the, the tape and say, watch this, you know, I don't know. And you've mentioned uh, new dawn fade. So that's, uh, that's been running for five years or so. Yes, and that's twenty thirteen. Yeah, and that's uh, about to be um, a graphic novel for a Kickstarter campaign. Yes, basically, I drew it as a graphic novel nearly ten years ago, and got a three book deal with Simon and Schuster <laughs> through a third party, shall we say? And uh, I did the whole book, and it ended up not being published because there were some issues over the lyrics rights which was not my fault it was happened down the line shall we say so i was sat there uh, 10 years ago with the whole artwork done thinking well that was a waste of time and so i decided to turn it into a stage play again that was a big risk you know because there's a lot of historical content in it and historical figures you know frederick engels is in it and um general julius agricola the roman commander who founded the Roman encampment that became Manchester, all that stuff's in it. Would it work on stage? And it did. So great. Um, so that became the stage play. And then all these years later, because we've been in the stage play this long, I thought, let's resurrect the graphic novel. So we found a new publisher and they've done a few new pages and we're including a lot of photographs from uh, the stage show. So yet again, it can sell on its own to people who love Joy Division 
vision of the Manchester music scene or graphic novels in general, but it's also a great piece of merchandise. So every time we do the show, you can take the show home with you as a graphic novel. Uh, so most recently, returning to uh, The Prisoner, you've done, was it a one-off show called Everyone, which is uh, every episode of The Prisoner in, in 45 minutes. So could you tell us a little bit about that? I've been very fortunate to be to have been invited as a guest uh, performer to the Six of One annual Port Merion events. Um, the first time I went there, I did Everyman, the stage show. And um, the second year, I think I might have done Everyman again. Um, third year, I wrote something new. Um, I can't remember what it was. One year, I did Number Six's Cabaret, where I did a few scenes from Patrick McGowan films, interspersed with some poetry about freedom. So every year, I try and do something new and just for Port Marion. And last year, which was the 50th anniversary, um, I thought, well, I've got to do Everyman, you know, for the 50th anniversary. And also I had the new edition of Everyman, the graphic novel with me and the new CD. So, you know, I had to do Everyman. This year, uh, just gone, April, we did it. Um, I I had to come up with something new and I kept kept thinking, right, what can I do? And I thought, oh, well, I'm doing One Man Bond. (laughs) So I thought, what about One Man Prisoner every episode in... 45 minutes. I wanted it to be the length of an episode. And um, so that took a while to transcribe. Again, I was looking through every episode and, and you know, having to play all the different characters. And um, it's funny that I only got the script printed out two days before I went to the event. And I decided to do it as a radio broadcast because I knew I wouldn't have time to memorize it all because we were doing New Dawn Fades just the week before we were in performance so that was taking up time so i did it as kind of, you know with a microphone stand as if i was performing for the radio and just an hour before going on stage at the hercules hall to perform it i just came up with the idea of doing it as a really old doddery ancient um thespian you know so i put my glasses on and i, I borrowed a walking stick you know because it just added to the the comedy but I also did a little twist at the end um, where it was actually number six in disguise, you know. So I came on with a badge, which was number nine. And, you know, I came on shuffling as the old guy. And I, I read it I read it as though I didn't know what it was, you know. I said, I've, I've been given this um, script. Apparently, um, somebody's devised this uh, TV show. Anyway, I'll give it a go. You know, so that was like the comedy element. I didn't know what I was talking about. So I get to little bits of it and go, I, I don't know what's going on. Does anybody know what's going on in this scene? What the, who wrote this? You know, and then at the end, I kind of just uh, became McGill and I kind of just changed the body posture, turned the badge upside down, took the glasses off and said, be seeing you and walked off stage as McGill and you see. So that worked. And in fact, I got more laughs. People standing up clapping, and it, it, it appeared to be the best thing I'd done. And yet it was almost thrown together at the last minute. You know, this there's theatre, you know, it's that's the arts. You never know what's going to work, but you've got to give it a try. I kept thinking just a week before, this is a bad idea, you know. You know, everybody knows the, the episode's backwards. There's not that many jokes in it, you know. Yeah, I can do a few impressions, but, you know, but then just thinking, do it as an old character, um, you know, camp it up a bit and become Magoon at the end, throw in some surreal bits. And I think what works at these kind of events is that um, 
a lot of events I've been to, say you go to a doctor convention or a sci-fi convention or something, quite often it's mainly guests being interviewed on stage or clips of shows and that. And very rarely do they ever see any kind of reenactment or, you know, theatre. So I always try to do something that's theatrical, that's that's new, that the audience can sit there and, and enjoy as a piece of theatre, you know, rather than just listen to an interview. So God knows what I'll do next year. <laughs> you know, kind of run out of ideas now. But I'll come up with something a week before, you know. And will there be a chance for... Uh everyone to have um, an extended life as well? Will you have the chance to return to it? Um, it's it's a funny one, that one, because with every man, um, yes, even though it's a kind of niche cult thing, yes, I can see every man being on stage, you know, in major theatres because it stands on its own. You know, it's the story of a guy's life and all the strange things that happened to him resulting in the cult television program, whereas every one is like uh, the one-man Bond. You know, you really kind of need to be a Bond fan to go to one-man Bond, and you really, and there's a lot of Bond fans, you know, it's a major, major still-being-produced franchise, whereas The Prisoner is very, very much um, like a cult area. So if I did that somewhere, you know, who would come and see every episode of The Prisoner in 45 minutes? you would really have to be into the prisoner. So that's a bit difficult. That was really done just for Port Merion. But I'd be quite happy to do it again for, you know, like small events. You know, say, I know they have these walkabout events at prisoner locations in London. Say if they said, do you want to come down to London and we'll do this in a, a cafe somewhere and give you your expenses, I'll go, yeah, I'll do it there. Um, but also what was lucky um, when I when I did it at Port Merion in April was that um, I think it's ITV, there was a film crew going around filming for some new kind of, behind, you know, like these uh, behind the scenes of the hotel series, reality series. They're doing one on Port Merion. And I think it might be on TV around about September time. Um, but they also had some cameras in the Hercules Hall, I think. And normally, every time I've done something in there, it's not me. It's only ever been filmed by somebody on the phone, maybe. But this time, in fact, you can see in some of the photographs that were taken, that um, there's a, a little camera on a tripod right in front of me. So it has been recorded on a, I assume, professional level. Uh, and six of one have got that, and they're going to um, put it together at some point. I don't know what they're going to do with it, um, but there is some recording of it. Uh, so, yeah, I think if you're a Prisoner fan, you could even just listen to it as an audio, because like I said, it was presented as a radio piece. So I was doing everything into the microphone with a live audience. Um, so I think if you're into The Prisoner, you would enjoy it simply as an audio, uh, but also if it's been videoed nicely, um, that should work as well. But again, that's up to six of one. I've said to them that whatever I've done there, I don't care about copyright or anything. They can basically do what they want with it. They can show it, you know, I don't mind. It's just publicity for me, really. Um, so yeah. Okay, Brian, uh, we'd like to thank you for taking the time to chat to us all about not only uh, The Prisoner and uh, your work uh, on Everyman, but also One Man Bond and New Dawn Fades. Where can people who are listening find out more about what you're up to? Uh, the easiest way is my brand new website, which contains everything that you could possibly want to know about me. It even includes some old, really 
um, let's use the word entertaining loosely, uh, some really old uh, films that I'm in that my brother made in the 80s on Super 8. They are hilarious, and I've uploaded them. So they're on my website, dead easy to remember, briangorman.online. That's got all, the, and it's got a different page for One Man Bond, New Dawn Fades, Every Man, and other stuff. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry, another graphic novel, Animus. Uh, this uh, this has been written by a friend of mine, uh, S.M. Worsey. Um, she's written it, I've drawn it. This is very unusual, because all my other graphic novels I've written and drawn. So this was unusual. Plus, practically all the characters are animals. It's basically the Expendables with animals. <laughs> it's a bunch of animals get together for revenge on uh, these humans at this hunt ball. So uh, that was a challenge drawing that. But I finished the artwork on that last year. And that is supposed to be published and out for the Lakes International Comic Art Festival this October, where I'll be performing One Man Bond, but having me on as the cabaret. Yes. And I'll have a table there with all the graphic novels. But yes, for the first point of uh, um, information, Brian Gorman dot online. So uh, with that, we'd like to say uh, thank you, Brian, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And we look forward to everything you'll be doing in the future. Thanks for having me. Good seeing you. Information. Information. So huge thanks again to Brian for joining us. It was absolutely wonderful talking to him all about his interest in The Prisoner and Patrick McGowan and all the other work that he's doing as well. Yeah, uh, do check out his website, follow him on Twitter and find out about all the things he's got going on. Um, and if you do get a chance to see One Man Bond, uh, we strongly recommend it as it tours the UK later in the year. Yep. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that on Twitter at TFCAA, on Facebook, the Facebook page is Time for Cakes and Ale, or on our website, which is timeforcakesandale.com. And we'll be back soon with an episode of our regular Tally Ho podcasts, all about the episode Hammer into Anvil. But for now, from the Tally Ho podcast, be seeing you. you.